Um, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 22. Hebrews 9:11 to 22. We read the first two verses for our scripture memory section of our service, but let's review them together. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels in the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Father, as we look into this text, give us eyes to see, ears to ear. Help us to fully appreciate the the wisdom, the power, the might that is inherent in the blood of your Son. Help us to see. Uh, give us eyes, spiritual eyes, to be able to see how that the blood is what cleanses and purifies our conscience, what changes our heart and makes it beat with love for you. I pray, Father, that you would perhaps even do a work of conversion within the heart and soul's of those who might be listening that may not be even uh, believing this morning. Help them to be uh, very encouraged through the Spirit to, to reach out by faith and accept your Son and the blood that is freely offered for them. I pray, Father, that you would give me clarity as I speak. And I pray, Lord, that your will would be done. In your name we pray. Amen. It is one thing to talk about guilt. It is quite another thing to, to live under its weight. Guilt can be very debilitating. I was 
speaking with a friend who, who told me he continually has to live with a reminder of how they were involved in the taking the life of an unborn child before they were born again. That's very weighty. That's a lot to carry, a lot of guilt. And while memory may not be completely eradicated, my friend and actually anyone who struggles under the weight of sin can find genuine hope of relief in the blood of Jesus Christ, able to purify their heart and also their conscience. I think at times uh, our personal evangelism as Christians has focused a lot on the legal implications of sin. Uh, We communicate through perhaps a Romans road structure that we can have the forgiveness of sins on a legal scale, and that's well and good. In fact, that's very true, but sometimes we overlook the reality that the blood of Christ changes and frees the soul and the conscience as nothing else can do. And so we have to also consider not just the legal implications of the gospel, we also need to understand and appreciate the freeing aspect of the blood of Jesus Christ that changes our hearts to be able to rejoice in God's salvation. A person who is born again actually has within their hearts a reset. There is a heart reset that then affects the conscience. When a person is born again, their conscience is awakened. They're able to see the holiness of God, not with eyes of fear, but of joy, of of relish, of excitement. That is a fundamental change that occurs in the heart because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to be thinking along the lines of how the eternal Spirit purges us with the blood of Jesus Christ. How does the eternal Spirit purge us with the blood of Christ? Well, verses 11 through 14, we're going to be thinking more specifically about the conscience, and in the last half, we're going to be thinking about the heart reset But we're going to talk about the conscience first, verses 11 to 14. We're kind of going to be looking at the symptom, if you will, and then moving towards the root in the last half of this message. How do people typically purify their their consciences? How do people typically deal with the, the weight that they find themselves with? Well, there are a variety of ways that people will do this. And I hope you would see that largely they're ineffective. But it's very common for people to try to tip the scales of God's justice, if you will. That they try to alleviate their conscience by saying, if I can just do enough to outweigh what I have done, then perhaps I will be accepted. And what unfortunately happens, it becomes a treadmill of trying to pay off the mortgage of your life. It's something that's exasperating. It's something that can't ultimately be done. Sometimes people will then dismiss the sin. They'll say, well, it really isn't, you know, that that weedy. And what they do is they, they downplay the purity of God. 
in the process. That ultimately is not a satisfying way to deal with conscience. Another way that people will do is also on the other side of dismissing the sin, actually what people will do is justify the iniquity. They'll actually um, increase their commitment to sin or a particular type of sin. And you see that in our society. Don't we see people glorifying evil as a compensating way of dealing with a guilty conscience? Sometimes people, as I said, you know, they celebrate the sin. Others will then downplay the wrath of God and say, well, God is a merciful God. He's actually going to excuse all this stuff. He can't possibly hold me accountable for this. He's, he's a God of love, a God of mercy. And so what people do is they, they try to deal with their, their guilty consciences in a variety of ways that will actually be ineffective. The only, all of these only serve to actually increase God's wrath. Jesus is coming again. He's going to carry out judgment. He, he is going to carry out judgment on people who refuse to come to Him for the forgiveness of their sin and alleviate and deal with their consciences. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 9 says this about Jesus' is coming. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. See, Jesus sits right now on the throne, at the throne, the right hand of the majesty of God on high. He's in the place of capacity to exercise judgment, or on the other hand, to offer mercy for any who's in need of alleviation of their conscience. And any other way of trying to deal with one's conscience is going to be ineffective and actually contribute to the increase of God's just wrath poured out against them one day. So in verse 11, what we see is a time of goodness coming. Um, We actually are now at a place where the things once promised have actually come, the opportunity of having mercy instead of judgment. What has come? Verse 10, if you look back at the previous context, please notice that in the old system, there were all of these regulations that were imposed until the time of reformation. But now that Christ has come, the high priest of good things, it's here. The opportunity to claim the blood of Christ for oneself is now here. That time of reformation has arrived. Judgment does not have to be the end for any of us. Mercy is available to us. And the blood of Christ secures mercy. So, This is a part of the purification of the conscience. We have to believe that the blood of Christ secures mercy by turning away God's wrath. See, verse 11 and 12 make this clear. We read that 
through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He didn't enter into the earthly tabernacle or temple in Jerusalem. He entered into the very throne room of God. He entered into the world in which God exists and His visible presence is known. He appeared at the very throne of God where God decrees either just, uh, judgment or mercy. And Jesus took His blood and presented it, securing an eternal redemption. You know, through the media, we have been reminded repeatedly that all lives matter. Why does life matter? Because each of us has an eternal destiny. Life is eternal. And one's eternal destiny will either be with God or it will be in hell. But in order for that opportunity to have our eternal life reside with God in the future, there has to be some sort of provision made. There has to be a life substitute, and the blood of Jesus represents life itself, and it has an infinite quality to it. See, the blood of bulls and goats simply cannot do, because they're not equal to the value that God places upon a human soul. Human blood, though, must have a sinless quality to it in order to effect an eternal union with God. So, therefore, only the blood of Christ, He was sinless in all of His life, is able to turn away God's wrath so that eternal mercy might be ours. Eternal redemption is the outcome of His blood spilled out. And it's available for all who will call upon His name. So when we approach God by faith, what we are doing is making claim to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what this does is that faith in the blood of Jesus Christ directs our conscience off of itself. It focuses our, our being upon Christ, who is infinitely perfect. We cannot inwardly look at ourselves because there is nothing good within us that can secure that union with God. Only the blood of Christ can do that. And so, in verses 11 and 12, what you're seeing is that the blood of Christ secures mercy by turning away the wrath of God Now, I want us to see how that the eternal spirit applies the blood of Christ to the conscience. Now, verse 13 and 14 develop this point. And so, it does through contrast. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice the threefold use of the word eternal. That is intentional by the writer. In verse 12, he uses the word eternal, referencing redemption. He talks about the Spirit as being eternal. In verse 15, I know we didn't read it yet, but we're going to see the result of the eternal Spirit producing an eternal inheritance. This threefold use of eternal is important, and it also highlights the distinction between a temporary purification and an eternal purification. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the answer is, it, it's so much more, it's eternal in scope. See, our salvation was not conceived by us. Our salvation was conceived by the triune God. I don't know if you saw some of those elements in these verses that I read, but if you notice um, in verse, verse 11, or excuse me, verse, verse 14, how much will the blood of Christ, that's the Son of God, who through the eternal Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God that's referring to the Father. All of this is orchestrated by God Himself. This purification is designed to take away guilt because it has nothing to do with us. It is all of God's grace. It's designed to take away guilt, and with eyes of faith which are given to you by the Holy Spirit... You see, it's the Holy Spirit who, who presents the blood of God to Christ, but it is also the subject of the one who purifies our conscience from the dead works. It's the Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts and, and cleans us from the inside out. And the ability to see this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. To be able to hear this and to, to rejoice inside of you is, is not something that comes naturally. It comes from the wind of the Holy Spirit moving within, telling your heart that, yes, the blood of Christ is able to forgive and cleanse you of all your sin. That's something that, that the blood of Christ outside of you simply can't do. The Holy Spirit has to take that into you so that you can be lifted out of a guilty conscience. I know that some of us are very introspective people, and some of us even tend towards depressive thoughts. I know that statistically in America, nearly 50% of the population deal with some form of anxiety or depression. It's a very debilitating condition. It might encourage us to know that the others have gone before us who have appreciated the blood of Jesus Christ and it actually helped assist relief of their conscience. I think of John Bunyan, who is the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He, he, we are familiar with 
Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote a personal testimony in a book called Abounding, A Grace Abounding to the Chiefs of Sinners. He looked inside his soul, and he at times would have Satan telling him, you can't be forgiven. You can't. You've done so much that there's no relief for you. And this is what he said, I am very confident that this temptation of the devil is more usual among poor creatures than many are aware of. Even to overrun their spirits with a scurvy and seared frame of heart and benumbing conscience, which frame he quietly and slyly supplies with such despair that though not much guilt attends the soul, yet they continually have a secret conclusion within them that there is no hope for them. That's debilitating. And the, we actually need the, the eyes of faith to see that the blood of Christ delivers us from any responsibility. That's something that's imparted by the Holy Spirit. Bunyan could have been talking to any one of us, could have talked to my friend who I referred to at the beginning of this message. He could have been talking about John Newton, former slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace. He, having bound people from Africa on slave ships, and he heard the groans, and he, he in his, his memory, still retained those memories of the groans, and he felt the oppressive weight of guilt, and what did he do? He had to look to the blood of Christ. He chose not to deny the sin of the past. He didn't minimized the sin, he realized what it was, but he still intended to cling tightly to his Savior. He would often say, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And that's what the blood of Christ can do for a guilty and hurting conscience. It can bring healing to the soul. And so rather than repressing or suppressing the severity of sin, we ought to be then rejoicing in the mercy of God. That's where we see real hope. Now let's get to the very heart where he went with this presenting conscience issues. See how the blood of Christ actually gets right in and changes the heart. So verses 15 to 22, we see how the blood of Christ purifies our heart. Verse 15 to 17, I'm breaking this into two pieces, this last paragraph. He describes Jesus as being the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And what he does here is he describes the, the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. Now, in other sermons, we've, we've looked at what a covenant is, so I'm not going to rehearse that this morning. But the Jewish concept of a covenant is maybe foreign to our way of thinking and even foreign to some of the Mediterranean uh, world in which this author is living in this text, he, he, he switches gears. He, he moves from the, the covenant concept and then switches to the, 
the legal idea in the Roman world of a last will and testament, like a, a, a will that transacts when a person dies. So you have to observe the change here, and there's a curious tension that develops. And I didn't read the, the, the transitional verse there in verse, um, verse 16. It says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For with a will, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. There is some tension here in the analogies that he's setting up, and so it could be very easy to get a little lost in the, the analogies. Um, in the first analogy, in the Old Covenant, there's a mediator, someone who stands between God who is estranged and us who have, who have fallen short of His glory. There has to be a mediator, okay? He switches gears, and he starts talking about how that this mediator has died. This mediator dies. And he switches gears to think about how a last will and testament is set up. And so, as you look at this, you might be asking yourself, well, how is it possible that a mediator can then officiate a will? How can a if he's dead, how does, that, how does that work? And there's a tension that's put in play here that's not explained, but I'm going to give you a hint as to how this could be both dead and also living. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfies all the requirements of the old system through his life. His death, his blood pays the consequences of our sin, but then he lives to execute the will of his Father for us. This is the remarkable thing about how all the Old Testament points and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, remember we talked a while ago about the Day of Atonement and how that there were several goats that were involved? There was a goat whose life was shed and that blood was put upon the altar to turn away the wrath of God. There was also another goat that was sent out into the wilderness to take the sin debt of the people to perish out in the wilderness. In our world, you can't be one or, you gotta be one or the other. You can't be both. But this is the miracle of Jesus. He is not one or the other. He is both. He is both. And this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. He is not just the mediator whose, whose blood satisfies, but he is also the one who lives to give us an eternal inheritance. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. And so, how does this eternal inheritance work itself out? Well, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit the gift of union with God. The Holy Spirit takes residence within our heart as a living principle of, that's from the living God and gives us the eyes to see and to experience relief, but also to experience joy. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to perceive the beauty of God. 
Holiness which used to cause us to be dreadful of God actually causes us to rejoice in God. Jesus and God becomes dear to us, not something that we, we, we kind of like shudder. And that's the change of the new birth. It's like we, we don't stand below Mount Sinai in dread and fear. Rather, we have come to Mount Zion, a city of angels dressed in festivities. That's an analogy that's going to come later in the book of Hebrews. And so, the, the blood of Christ unlocks the, the eternal inheritance of the new covenant, which is that we have been given a new heart with God's laws written upon our hearts and that's done by the Holy Spirit. So, the blood of Christ unlocks the inheritance, but in verse 18 to 22, the blood of Christ begins the purification of the heart. It begins the purification. Let's read verse 18 to the end. It says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin is what contaminates our souls. It needs purifying. How does the blood of Christ do this? And it uses, uh, in verse 18, he uses a very interesting word. He uses the word inaugurate. I don't know, maybe you have a different translation of that word, but essentially it means to begin, kind of like a reign, like a, you inaugurate a king, or we inaugurate a president, um, it begins and introduces a new status, a new, a new way of life. And the blood here introduces the new covenant. And so he argues from lesser to greater. He says, well, this is the way it was and how it started in the old. Wouldn't we expect that it would also start that way in the new? And so we... we Verse 19, I'm not going to rehearse all those uh, ceremonial details, 19 to 21, but that's what it looked like in the Old Testament. So what did it look like? What's it look like in the New? And this is where we have to consider how that the Holy Spirit sprinkles the blood of Jesus on our hearts. If you will, the eternal Spirit is the one who sprinkles the blood of Jesus and creates a purification inside of our hearts. How does that work? How does that work? I I know that's very abstract. I know that's kind of hard for us to conceptualize. But I do want to refer us to an illustration that John Bunyan used about how this takes place, and I think it's helpful. If you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, John... uh, Christian was going towards the celestial city. He had left the city of destruction, and he's going to, towards heaven. And on the road, on the road, he sees object lessons, illustrations of the Christian life. 
And he stops at a house, and in that house he observes a man sweeping a wooden floor. It was a large room, and a a broom that's made out of straw will actually kick up dirt. And the more effort that you, you, you take to sweep up what he observed in that room was it became a cloud of dust, and the harder the guy worked, the harder, the more dust was accumulating in the room. It was really a hopeless situation. But then he observed a young girl come in and sprinkle some water over the dust. And in the sprinkling of the water, you've been on dirt roads in backcountry, haven't you? And the big trail of smoke, when does the oil water truck go through, right? Puts down the dust, right? This is what he's seeing in that room. The dust coming down, relaxing under the sprinkling, under the sprinkling. And as we focus our hearts on the blood of Christ, there comes a relaxation that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. There's a sprinkling, a purifying of our hearts. We can't purge sin from our own hearts. The Holy Spirit has to step in and apply the blood of Christ to our hearts. The Spirit has a marvelous effect to change the underlying motives of our hearts so that we don't just recreate dead works. The Holy Spirit can enliven our hearts to produce works of love, not of performance, not of guilt, not of duty, but out of gratitude and love for Him. The Spirit purifies our motives over time. It's inaugurated. It's, it began with the blood of Christ applied through faith. But we have to continually look at the cross. We ought not live our lives post, post saying the Lord's prayer, or the, uh, a sinner's prayer as like, now I work it all, I'm doing all this stuff. No, we still need to, by faith, believe that the blood of Christ cleanses our hearts from all sin. We can't do it on our own after we have said the sinner's prayer. We still need the Spirit of God to do a work of cleansing within. It has begun at Calvary and continues within our hearts and will continue until the day we see Him face to face. You see, as we we put away sins, the Holy Spirit will point out Perhaps we have used people. Perhaps we have thought that our kind deeds were actually with, with no motive at all. But suddenly we realize, you know what? I actually was using a person. What do you do in a moment like that? You, you have to, in your heart, not suppress the sin. What you're trying to do is sweep. <laughs> and it's actually going to build up more dust in your heart. You have to then turn to the blood of Jesus Christ and with the eyes of the Holy Spirit, see it as sufficient to change your heart. Turn away. Admit that that sin was wrong. And embrace Christ. And what's happening there is your your, your desires are starting to change. The Holy Spirit is working within you, uh, transforming you, purifying you with the glories of heaven. The Holy Spirit is so critical 
to our Christian walk. We ought not grieve the Holy Spirit. We, not, we should not suppress the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but embrace it to know that it is producing within us a purification. Someone a few weeks ago thanked me for these sermons in Hebrews. She did say she was tracking along with me. I know that some of this detail is pretty, pretty, pretty deep. I, I, I replied to her that, you know, I just, I'm envious and jealous of Paul because what I try to do in 35 minutes a week, Paul, on the other hand, spent three hours every day in Ephesus for two years with people explaining the glories of the cross to people. There is so much in the doctrine of the atonement which we have to overlook because of time. But we have the Holy Spirit who can teach us, thankfully. And I would encourage you not to just wait for a Sunday, but that you would be applying the blood of Jesus Christ, that you'd be reading the Scriptures because they inform our hearts of the beauties of Christ's sacrifice for us. The eternal spirit is what purges us with the blood of Christ. And it's because of the blood of Christ we have an eternal redemption applied to our hearts by the eternal spirit inaugurating an internal inheritance. So what do we do with this doctrine? When we're tempted by guilt and despair, we must believe that God is fully satisfied with the sacrifice of His Son's blood for us. We must respond to the Holy Spirit, which convicts us of unholy motive. And then we must rejoice and rest in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.